cliffcentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And I am Ramon, and I am present. And um very excited to have this guest on. Uh, personally, quite a, I follow his work, and he's a phenomenal thinker. And I must thank a listener of ours called uh, Christo Hatting, mm. who helped immensely with getting this guest uh, onto our show. So, Christo, thank you, sir. Really, really appreciate it. So, we'll get to the guest shortly. Um, there's a lot of polarization in the world. Uh, we don't know if we're going to go with the world as an example, but uh, let's, uh, our guest is from the States, so let's, let's use that as an example. Um, right. You know, there's a certain guy in America who wants to make America great again. Yes, him and 63 million people who voted for him. Sure. And then you and have then the people other, on the other side who sort of also want to make America great, um, but they're fighting incessantly with the man in charge who wants to make America great. Yeah, so everyone wants to make America great. They They just fundamentally disagree about how they get to or, that point Or what greatness is That's the biggest problem yeah. No one can define What greatness is Yeah so, And that's where The disagreement comes Indeed And um, what, 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 was, what was it That uh, Tim Minchin said um, About uh, with Tennis courts And, and <laughs> Right So Tim Minchin Has this analogy That uh, modern, modern debating Is similar to Two tennis players Hitting perfectly Executed shots On two Opposite sides Of different Tennis courts Yeah So you are Literally Playing against No one And uh, Very well Against no one But uh, Because you're Both playing from Completely different premises uh, (laughs) There's no point There's no point To the debate uh, No not at all It's a false I think it's called A false dichotomy in, in, In logic I think but um, I think our guest has a methodology to get around that. Well, another um, polarized issue, it's, it's, it's climate change. And, uh, and Ramon, do you want to uh, introduce our guest for today? Our guest today is Alex Epstein. Uh, he's an American author and energy theorist. Uh, he's the author of a book called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. He is the president of the Center for Industrial Progress, a for-profit think tank located in San Diego, California. And Alex is joining us from San Francisco this morning. Alex, welcome to the show and thank you for joining us. Hey, good to be here. So let's, let's okay, so you just actually returned uh, to America from Cape Town where you were speaking at a, an event of sorts. Well, first of all, how did you find Cape Town and South Africa itself, and how was the debate? I mean, was it as as useful as you thought it could be? Well, first, I'll just tell you a little bit about where I was. So, the my trip had two basic parts, leaving aside the the, the travel, which is was fascinating in and of itself, but not our topic today. Uh, getting stuck in Dubai for twenty four hours is an interesting kind of thing, but. Uh, I was going to Cape Town to primarily participate in a debate for Africa Oil Week, which is an annual event, which I think is the biggest energy event, the biggest oil event uh, in Africa. And I think it regularly takes place in South Africa and in Cape Town, probably because it's, it's very nice there and pretty affluent there. And I didn't explore, so in terms of the scenery of Cape Town, I, I experienced enough to see it's beautiful, there's an affluent population, and obviously there's going to be a non-affluent population, which I wasn't as uh, exposed to. And then I went up to 
Table Mountain, which if anyone is there, is a really, really nice place. Although it's just completely mobbed to go to the cable car, so I ended up not not going to that. Uh, but I don't mm. feel like I got a, a you know a full Cape Town experience except uh, talking to the people, which I'll get to in a minute because that's often an interesting thing, just going to a city and talking to the drivers and seeing how they're thinking about issues. And a- after Cape Town, I went uh, to an area near uh, Kruger National Park to go on a safari. Uh, for three days. And I decided to extend my trip to do that. And that was really uh, fascinating. That might actually come up because there's a lot of interesting issues in Africa with wildlife because you have a lot of kinds of wildlife that are completely unparalleled or even don't exist in the rest of the world. And there are a lot of interesting kind of policy decisions. And I think that uh, the usual opposition of environmentalists slash conservationists and then the developers, I think both of them are wrong in important ways on how to think about uh, preserving those animals, which I think definitely should be a, a part. So lots, lots of different things. Um, I mean, the, the, I'll talk about the debate. The most interesting thing to me was just talking to people and realizing there are a lot – and I knew this theoretically, but I didn't know it concretely. There are a lot of people, at least in South Africa, who – really aspire to the good parts of industrialized life. And they were much more rational about energy issues than most of the people I talked to in the U.S. Because it's very clear to them that, for example, if they didn't have access to the absolute best energy for them, which overwhelmingly means the most affordable, reliable energy for them, that their lives would be... uh, Compromised. So, just one example. When I was on safari, I had a very, very bright uh, ranger guide named Ronald, and one of the people, you know, one of the guests who was a typical American liberal, maybe I think immigrated from Europe, so European American liberal, they were talking about, oh well, wouldn't it be good when you get uh, electric cars here? And Ronald just said (laughs) flatly, well, look, no one from Africa. Not only would that actually scare the animals, which is a whole interesting thing, because like the if you know. They're used to cars that make sounds, but uh, but he said Africans will have nothing to do with that unless it's actually the best energy for them. But if it comes to paying a huge premium for something that's not actually good for them, but that's just a status thing, most of them can't afford that and won't indulge in that. So I got I got very excited by the prospect of people who really want a better life, who I think are capable of sometimes of thinking about it more clearly than people who have already been given the better life but don't understand its foundations. Yes. I mean, that, that underpins your entire way that you make your argument. Um, so if I may just correct me if I'm wrong, your main argument is fossil fuels has enriched the lives of millions of – well, billions of people, in fact, over the past few decades, uh, almost a century, so to speak. And it has made the lives of – billions of people in the world far better than ever before. And by trying to take away fossil fuels in the pursuit of, of climate change goals and things like that, you're actually making people a lot poorer than what they are currently. Yeah, there are two parts to it. One is really defining the goal as wanting human beings to flourish and measuring success uh, by that. And it's important that that people don't always measure success by human flourishing. At least two things go wrong. One is they're not clear 
on how they're measuring success. If you're not clear on how you're measuring success, then you're going to just parasitically and carelessly adopt one or more uh, of other people's definitions of success, which can be wrong. And that goes to the second point, which is that the, the prevalent definition of good or success in energy is being green. But you mentioned climate goals. But yes. that, that, those climate goals really amount to let's impact climate as little as possible, and, and more broadly, let's impact nature as little as possible. And, and my view is that that is not a compatible goal with human flourishing. Human flourishing requires having a massive impact on nature. Now, sometimes you want to minimize your impact, but you want to minimize your negative impact, but you want to maximize your positive impact. So the whole way of thinking of progress as minimizing impact is a really toxic, uh, anti-human way of thinking. So once you have that as your as your goal, once you start measuring things by that as your standard, then you're even in a position to know to assess something as good or bad in a clear pro-human way. And then to your your, your summary of my point, yeah, once you start assessing things that way, I think it's quite straightforward that fossil fuels not only have been of tremendous benefit, which, you know, that's important, but are of tremendous benefit and are necessary for tremendous benefit going forward. And therefore, people who are talking about, well, let's just come up with some solar scheme to foist on, uh, you know, villages in Africa instead of giving them a grid with modern electricity. My point is that is anti-human life. Um, I want to play a little bit of devil's advocate um, so people will say, well, yes, human flourishing, no doubt, the past century uh, has definitely been driven by fossil fuel. I think anyone who wants to argue that uh, is easily refuted by the, the data. Sure. Uh, and it's very easy to see that as the Industrial Revolution takes off, uh, pretty much every other par parameter improves. Uh, so, you know, income per household, health, um, food, everything gets better. Uh, what about the argument that says, all right, well, that is our history, uh, but, you know, we live in South Africa, for example, this country has a lot of, uh, a lot of sun, you're in California, same story. Um, so let's just, uh, build the largest solar farms we possibly can because, because really renewables, uh, are, are the future. So, I mean, that's often what's really sold is, yeah, okay. We've 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 had we've had petrol and diesel and 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 fossil fuels up until now that has driven everything. But we can survive on the on the other renewables. This is this is we we're humans and we come up with new technology and we should just follow the new technology and and all the other stuff is old. It's it's interesting to think about when or whether at all we use this kind of argument in in any other because there's something that's true about it, but a lot more that, that's false about it. So imagine we did this in the realm of metal. So he said, well, in the last several hundred years, steel has really been fundamental to our civilization. Hmm. And you know, we've built our buildings that way, and you know, we build washers and dryers that way, and automobiles are often built that way. Um, but I think that instead, we need to replace everything with and I don't know, like, we just need an alternative metal. Like, are worried about running out of steel, steel plants cause too much pollution, whatever they say. Like, let's just come up with an alternative metal, and don't you believe in innovation, so let's just transition to alternative metal. Now, you'd probably think, one question you'd have is, well, what do you mean by transition? 
do you mean force us to use it or do you mean allow us to choose it right because allow us to choose it that's that's the free market policy but then then your focus wouldn't be so much on telling everyone to transition it would actually be making it valuable to some people and then growing and that that's the way technological shifts happen is you've got a good a decent technology or you've got a very good technology and has solved all these problems including problems of scale. So there are all these achievements involved. It's very difficult to do, but they've proven in reality to billions of people, look, I can provide you with metal. I can provide you with energy. And then somebody thinks, well, I've got a better idea. We generally recognize that it takes a while to work that out, that most ideas are bad, that most ideas for scaling things are bad. And therefore, we're on the premise of we encourage innovation and we leave ourselves free to choose better things, but we don't ban the entire system that works or foist on people an entire system that doesn't work you know that that is not that is not proven so the difference between a proven chosen system and an unproven unchosen system is vast and and potentially infinite so if you were going about this rationally you just wanted innovation what you would say is well, wouldn't it be great if we come up with something even, or if somebody could come up with something even better than fossil fuels? First of all, let's be open to all possibilities. So let's not exclude nuclear, which is always suspiciously excluded from yeah. it. Let's not have this idea of let's get it from the sun. Maybe that's one idea, but but let's maybe try to get it from much more concentrated uh, stored sources of energy. So your premise would you would you would not have the bias toward renewable, and you would not have the bias toward coercion of, of forcing it on people. So I think with this transition idea, they're talking about forcing ideas on us, and they're talking about forcing completely unproven ideas on us. And that is not the way innovation works. Innovation works through choice and evidence. And so that, with that in mind, yes, obviously I, would wa- I want something to be better than fossil fuels as soon as possible, or I want fossil fuels to be better than fossil fuels as soon as possible. Right. I mean, to illustrate your point, excuse me, uh, no one forces another to use an Apple iPhone or a Samsung, whatever, Galaxy. Uh, People adopt it because it is the the better way to communicate. Uh, There's no no bureaucracy that's saying everyone has to have, you know, an Apple iPhone. It it just evolves. People know what is best for them, it appears, funny enough. Uh, I mean, what if, just to to interject on that example, what if you had someone in the newspaper say, I'm in favor of alternative phones. Like, I want renewable phones. We should make them out of natural materials. You, You would regard that person as being completely full of it and having nothing to contribute. Because what have they contributed? They just say <laughs> arbitrarily, I want something different that has these features. Yes. That's yeah. worthless. And, and, you should be creating something. And, and then I suppose the next step in, in the analogy would be that the government would then step in and go, well, we agree with you on the renewable phone. And in fact, yeah. we're going to fund the renewable phone and we're going to give people sort of perverse incentives to have renewable phones. Oh, no, I disagree with you. They're just going to force phone companies to make the renewable phone. That's, a, that's, a, that's coercion. The government doesn't make it well, itself. Well, they, they can do it a number of ways. I mean, you can give people preferences. You can give mandates. I mean, they did this actually in the U.S. with something called the ethanol mandate. Because ethanol is, is alcohol fuel derived from different kinds of plants. And they had something called cellulosic ethanol 
which different very prominent advocates said, oh, this is going to be great. It'll be better than gasoline. They actually mandated a certain amount of production, as in whoever produces energy, they have to produce X million gallons of – and the, and then it, it never existed. Like nobody could do it, so they had to get <laughs> rid of it. But that was the kind of perfect thing where the government basically said, thou shalt produce X million gallons of cellulosic ethanol and did happen. But imagine that in addition to that, they restricted us from using gasoline. Then we would really pay the price. Yeah, absolutely. So, Alex, let me go down to your to your basic uh, claim once once again. Sorry. So let's let's not beat around the bush. Eighty-five percent of all energy is from fossil fuels. Um, the rest is comprised of a heavily subsidized solar industry and uh, hydropower and all the rest of it. But the majority of the world and the majority of people are fueled by fossil fuels. And why? How can I explain? What is the what is the risk of not having? fossil fuels as a primary source of energy now without without anything actually taking on that responsibility as being the primary fuel or, or source of energy rather well as you, as you mentioned 85% so it's it in a very real sense energy in modern life is fossil fuel energy. I mean, I don't know if the, there's the analogy to steel. It's, it's probably even more significant. I mean, it's hard to imagine life without steel, but in terms of how steel, you know, how central steel is to our use of, of metals, fossil fuel, I think, is at least that central to our use of energy. So with something like that, if you, and, and, so if you stipulate that there are good reasons for that, that people are generally choosing it, not because they're somehow manipulated, but because it is actually the cheap, plentiful, and reliable solution for them, often the only one, then what it means to not have fossil fuels, it means to not have energy. And you can see this easily in the places in the world that have very little energy. You have, I think, 1.2 billion people without any electricity, most of whom are in Africa. Uh, And then you have 2.7 billion people who are using wood and dung to heat their homes and, 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 and their stoves. So you have huge amounts of people. And you think about, well, what's what do they need? Well, one thing they need is they need energy to be even more affordable for them than it is now, because obviously they can't afford it. There are infrastructure issues too, but that itself is an issue of affordable affordability to spread among people. So right now, those are living examples of people who do not have access to fossil fuels, right? Because fossil fuels, they're the most affordable to them, but they're still not affordable. So basically, what you do if you increase the price of fossil fuels or you restrict access is you just stick more people mm. in that category of not having access to electricity or having really primitive and unhealthy uh, sources of heat. But it can get even worse because those people, while they don't have electricity, are enormous beneficiaries of the products of electricity and more broadly of energy you know, in terms of like uh, something like a modern vaccine or modern medicine, or even just the knowledge that that's growing, or different charitable outreach and those kinds of things, those are all products of an industrialized, high-energy civilization. So the more people you have fall, we can call it the energy line, right? The more people fall below the energy line, it's they, both, they suffer from lack of energy themselves, but also there's a fewer number of high-energy people creating all kinds of new knowledge and, and, and products. So what we have as a precedent in history is we have 100,000 years where people's life expectancy is 30 because without energy, 
they are manual labor civilizations instead of machine labor civilizations. And that's really the fundamental distinction. Energy takes you, because it's it's the fuel of machines, it takes you from a machine labor civilization, a manual labor civilization in which human beings are weak and relatively helpless to a machine labor civilization in which we can basically 100x our power by having machines do our physical work for us. Whereas we agree with that premise. I mean, you have uh, harvesters that can, that can, uh, what you call it, cultivate, you know, 500,000 loaves of bread a day. You know, some of these, these factories can do that these days. Um, but however, I don't want to infer, uh, or, or project malevolence from my side, but a lot of people on the side of renewable energy and, and the climate change proponents, seem to have a very uh, misanthropic Malthusian streak within them. Uh, so the subsistence farmer is actually the greatest human being on earth because he's in touch with nature. And he, he you know, he, he, he eats according to his own needs provided by the earth. Uh, this, this mother Gaia theory goes about that. Um, the more we mechanize and the more we produce, the less able we are to empathize, so to speak, with, with the earth and nature. So how does your premise of, of, of humanism and human flourishing, how can you ever have a debate with someone who believes that? Well, you need to be clear on, do they really believe the core of, of that, which is that we should place non-human nature above humans? Like if that's if you believe that the non-human is above the human or even equal to the human, then in action you have to continuously deprioritize uh, human life, and it makes sense to say something like a subsistence farm is great because look look how little they're impacting the rest of nature. But if you're a humanist, you say, well, that's really bad because they should be impacting nature more. They should be uh, be they they shouldn't. I forget how you put it. You put it like they put it, but something like he's controlling his food. But what's actually happening is he's completely out con- out of control of his life because the weather is in control of his life. And historically, we just see you no know, droughts just wiping out large, large uh, no- numbers of people. So I think some people, there are two categories. One are people who really have a misanthropy in terms of they do not value human life including their own, and they'll stick by that even when you show them, look, accepting this position really means people are going to die, That would and that would be preventable, and they say, yes, I, I embrace that. Uh, I think other people are just confused about how nature works and how human nature works. You mentioned Malthusianism, uh, which involves a pessimism about man's ability to create new resources. Uh, more broadly, I think there's just an understand a misunderstanding about man's relationship to nature because we're viewed as as resource parasites when we're fundamentally resource creators. We take we take unusable raw materials and, and make them into usable resources. Uh, but the other thing we do is we're not primarily environmental contaminators. We're actually environmental improvers. So we, we don't take a, a a naturally clean environment and make it dirty, we take a naturally dirty environment and make it much cleaner. So if you have this view, this positive view, what I call the the producer-perfector view of human nature, so we produce resources and we perfect our environment, if that's your view, 
then the idea of human beings having more impact is generally a positive uh, idea. But if you have the idea that we're actually parasite polluters, then you think of all of our impact as we're raping the earth or we're, we're sullying it. Yeah. Why do you think it is that, you know, we're told about uh, climate science, uh, I'm sure the usual, we, we've done another show previously on, on, on climate change and, and, and the usual epithets get thrown out around climate denial and, and all of that. Um, why do you, why do you think that the science has become politicized towards humans as the destroyers of nature rather than the sort of cleaners as you've, as, as you've proposed it? Well, I don't, I think they always get this very negative conception of man to begin with. I mean, sometimes I think of it as an original environmental sin. So it's original sin for our relationship with the rest of, uh, of nature. So that is that, that, so the people have this idea that the, nature is stable, safe, and sufficient, and that all we can do, you know, we, we basically plunder and pollute it. You know, that's what, that's what our impact does. And yep. so what we really have to do is minimize our impact, and then nature will, will take care of us. And this, this view, particularly in the last 30, 40 years, has been really taught, certainly in Europe and, and certainly in the U.S., really indoctrinated into people. And so even though it's completely false, it, ha- it has been indoctrinated as a core religious tenet. So people just think of impact uh, as as bad, and thus they can't look at things in an objective way. Whereas, as you indicated, looking at it in a humanistic way, it doesn't mean assuming that we can't have any negative impact on climate. Certainly, not that we can have we can't have any impact on climate, but it means looking at that in a very clear-headed way, as saying, okay, well, what are we having an impact? To what extent is it an impact? What what elements are good? What are bad? And how significant is that uh, in light of the benefits of fossil fuels? You just think of it, you know, you weigh it very carefully like you're choosing a prescription drug and looking at the side effects versus this whole religious thing, which is climate change is evil. Anyone involved with it is evil. I want to run away from it, and I don't care at all uh, about the policies that will lead to billions of people being deprived of energy. That's religion. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the dogma is, is well known in, in South Africa, at least. Uh, we have uh, quite a lot of shale gas in a place called the Karoo, uh, which is a, a semi-desert of sorts. And the semi-desert is, is, you know, it's, it's like sanctified. The only reason it's a semi-desert is because of sheep farming that ate all, all vegetation within the, within the area. So that's why it's a semi-desert, not because it's, uh, you know, a God-given, anyway, right, to be a semi-desert. So, so that shell, so we had, uh, we, we have an energy producer, only one state owned energy producer, which runs on coal. And shell gas was discovered about 10 years ago. And then the, the, there was a moratorium. So rich farmers in the Karoo said that uh, we cannot, you know, frack for, for shell gas in, in South Africa because you know, all the old myths about fracking being extremely causing earthquakes and destroying the water supply and all that sort of nonsense. Uh, the problem we have in South Africa is unemployment. Uh, we have a, a 40% unemployment rate, uh, concentrated specifically around these rural areas where the shale gas is. And, uh, to this day, there's still a moratorium on fracking. 
So we're not allowed to frack at all. Um, and so you have destitute people still not having jobs within that area. All that's a great just, to, just I mean that's a great example. Yeah, just to protect uh, the interests of rich farmers. Right, and that, that often, you know, there's this core I- idea of of minimize our impact, be green, uh, but that that's that irrational anti-human idea is easily seized upon for people who want unfair preferential treatment. Right, because you it, all you, you can always just you can just say of any development that you don't want from competition or aesthetic reasons or you just don't feel like it, you can just say, oh well, look, that has having a big environmental impact, so we shouldn't do it. So it's it's like a cure all. Uh, it, it's it's a trump card that you can use to just oppose anything you don't want, and that that's a lot of why it's often tied to corruption, it's because it's, it's this universally bad idea because. It's very powerful to have an, an idea where, that you can use to oppose anything you don't like. The CO2 idea is like this, right? Because everything we do, we're carbon-based life forms. I mean, everything we do involves CO2 emissions, particularly our energy. So if you want to just oppose anything, you can just signal it out for its carbon footprint. And the same thing is true for environmental impact. And the same thing is true, incidentally, for the idea of being dirty. You know, everything has byproducts. So you, anything you want to oppose, you can just say, oh, it's dirty. But they never – it's always a double standard. The, the, the solar people don't talk about all the dirt and, and even death involved in mining for the materials they Absolutely. need or for disposing of all the waste. But so it's always a double – when you have these evil universal ideas – they're always applied well, with a double standard. I can give you a, a direct double standard to the, the example Roman's just given, which is that in the same area where we're not allowed to frack for all the reasons, uh, they are building a giant uh, telescopic array. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, you, you know fracking quite well. Uh, a fracking well is relatively localized. Uh, whereas this array, this, this telescope array is, is, is thousands of, of dishes and solar panels uh, spread over thousands of square kilometers, um, which in, you know, from a visual perspective will, will actually make the entire landscape very ugly. And, and many people like to go there because it's, it, they find it, find it beautiful. Um, so, so the telescope is fine because that's good science, uh, but the fracking is not fine because that's bad science. Why are there so many solar panels there? I don't understand the relationship between that and a telescope. As far as I know, to power it. But uh, <laughs> and then that's a de- I mean that that's even more blatant because you know I mean a telescope has a certain kind of value, but they're just I mean they're basically they're deliberately having a massive impact on the landscape in order to be green, which people could say, well, isn't that a contradiction? Because they're having a lot of impact. To minimize impact, but the point is, it's it's a it's an irrational standard, so it's always selectively uh, applied. So if you notice people being hypocrites about it, you can point that out. But the biggest thing to point out is the whole standard uh, is wrong because if you apply it consistently, then you just can't do anything. Like people say, "Well, Al Gore takes jets, and that's bad." Well, but the the premise shouldn't be nobody should take jets. It should be we should all be allowed to take jets but we shouldn't spit on the pilot yeah but but, but there, there there seems to be uh 
you know, the hypocrisy gets ignored. Uh, solar panels take uh, create a lot of damage on the earth. Uh, the the minerals, the mining of the minerals is potentially harmful to humans and, and the way that that's being done often violates human rights. Uh, we can say the same about the stuff that goes into electric car batteries. Uh, yeah, that's true. And, and, uh, and with regards to wind turbines, the a lot of the environmental damage, it's always humorous to me that there's an environmental impact assessment done every time anything gets built these days. Uh, but if you want to put up a wind turbine, it, it doesn't seem to be a problem uh, when they've shown that they they can be very, very harmful to nature. Yeah, but, but so I think it's important to point out those issues in the sense that if our goal is to advance human flourishing, we need to carefully look at the positives and negatives of each option. We can't just look at the negatives of one and the positives of another. So, so it, it should really caution us against a bias and should make us look at the full context. What I, what I caution against is, how do I put this? Carefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, um, is conceding the point. So conceding the premise that it's bad to have environmental Impact. So if, you know, for instance, take batteries. Yeah, there are ways in which batteries that are produced that are unethical. And there are certain inherent dangers with today's state of technology. But our general attitude should be not, let's not produce batteries or let's look down on batteries. Let's produce batteries a better way. But if the advocates of batteries are pretending that batteries are basically just, I don't know, like vegetables that produce electricity, Right. And that this is just totally non-toxic. Then you should expose that. But it's in the name of of finding the best alternative, because you can't find the best alternative if you only look at the risks of one and the benefits uh, of the other. So just see it as as let's talk about impact as a generally positive thing. And let's talk about human flourishing as the goal, not just say not to say, well, oh, well, you think fossil fuels are bad. Well, you advocate is just as bad. That's that's too negative. Right. It's not, it's not tit for tat. It's just understanding the, that the foundational value should be the same and what is the best way to get there. I think that's what yes. you're advocating. Yes. Okay. And that human value, of course, is human flourishing. Right. So, I mean, Alex, a very important thing here. You're actually a philosopher and not, not so much a climate scientist. And how – how can I explain this? How has that philosophy, how has the pursuit of philosophy helped you define the way you do things? Cause you, you speak against scientists. You debate them openly in public. I think, I think your pin tweet is, uh, you'll give a hundred thousand dollars to Al Gore if he debates you. I don't know if he's taken you up on that offer. Um, I would debate you for a hundred thousand dollars though <laughs> with, with pleasure. But your, your background in philosophy, how has that helped you actually debate Scientists, because I mean, one would suspect that they are the authority figure in, in this domain. Uh, it's, it's a big question. I think, well, to the extent anyone has found anything distinctive in the interview so far, it probably comes from a, a philosophical approach. I mean, notice basically the first thing that I did before, after giving just a little account of recent travels, was defining the standard by which I'm evaluating everything in the domain that we're talking about. Uh, you, you know, whether you hear people on quote my side or the other side, I think you'll almost never hear that 
uh, done. And that's really a philo- uh, you know, a philosophical thing is that you, you learn to think very carefully in terms of defining your end. What are you after? So if we're having a discussion, first thing we need to know is what are we after? Because then that sets the standard by which we can evaluate different options versus just jumping in and saying like, well, here's some things about fossil fuels and here's some things about renewables and kind of take this stance, but you're not, you don't, there's no clear uh, methodology. So maybe the, the broadest thing is that it, it philosophy teaches me to be, uh, to have a methodology uh, for things. And part of that methodology is always being clear on my end. And then also with the means always when I'm looking at different alternatives, trying to look at the full context uh, of each and then when I'm thinking of other positions, looking first and foremost at what is their end, what is their method in terms of the end and the means, you know, versus just their their claims, just their claims out of context. And so that with the scientist, then that leads to first thing I'll notice about the scientist might be, OK, this is let's say it's a scientist who says 97 percent of scientists agree, climate scientists agree that climate change is real. And that's why I support a carbon tax. Like, like, I don't care if that's Stephen Hawking or, you know, if Einstein was alive, Einstein. that thought process, that's a garbage kind of statement. Yes. It, it doesn't matter who, who you are. I mean, so if, let's sort of go into it. Um, so, well, even, even let's leave aside the 97%, the therefore I support a carbon tax, like the fact that you think fossil fuels have some impact or even a, a negative impact, if, if you think, if that's implied in climate change is real. It doesn't follow that you should restrict them with a carbon tax. I mean, it might be that that impact is tiny compared to the benefits or that there are negative impacts of the others. So it's just a complete non sequitur. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So that's that's a whole fallacy right there. And then the 97 percent of the, the phrasing of it that focuses on the number of people who who agree with something rather than the clarity of the idea and then the evidence for it, that's a giveaway in terms of an appeal to authority. And so then I would ask the person, okay, what do you mean climate change is real? Like, what, what do you mean by climate change? What do you mean is real? Are you saying mild, massive? And when you say 97%, how did you find that out? So these are all things that well, – one consequence, I think, of, of the power of philosophy here is that anyone, if they just study a little philosophy or learn to think this way, can ask really tough questions that will will reveal – really dreadful thinking even on the part of of smart people so you you can do them a service and you can point out bad method like it's easy to observe bad method unless the person has really good method so you want to be clear on look is is our priority human flourishing or is our priority unaltered nature that's one kind of question Mm. and then are we defining our terms are we looking at the alternatives with uh, even-handedness? Are we looking at them with bias? Are we looking at things with precision? Are we looking at them with vagueness? Just the, this set of tools is so uh, is so powerful, and almost every tool is being violated in the discussion. I think the reason I've been able yes. to uh, be innovative or useful or both in the energy discussion is simply that I'm very rigorous about those tools. And then I, I use I develop my own expertise, but I, I use those tools in developing my expertise and in talking to the uh, existing experts. And what I found is that they overwhelmingly weren't using those tools, and they were violating uh, every rule of logical thinking I know. And I think some people have improved their their thinking uh, as a result of being exposed 
to this kind of thing. But there are a lot of people who are still just going around saying 97% of scientists believe climate change is real. That's why I hate fossil. Like, just so that we're still at such a garbage philosophy state of yeah. I mean, I, I really recommend to everyone to be friends with philosophers. Uh, I'm friends with three who have PhDs. And it's infuriating but very rewarding because they keep telling you how wrong you are <laughs> about your intuitions and your assumptions or your arguments. So you go home frustrated and then you think about it and you said, of course I was wrong for these reasons. It really helps clarify your thinking. So, Alex, my, my, my the second part of that question is, how important is the science itself to you? I mean, that's that's the that's the tricky situation here because the the models seem to be very flawed, and the science itself seems to be very politicized. So, how can we get a clear idea of what the science actually says? Well, it depends what you mean by how important is the science to me. I mean, there, there's there's always the method by which you think about something, and then the content. And you can't really say one is more important uh, than the other. Like, is it important to be right or have the right method of getting to right? Well, they go along. But imagine I said, well, I I have this great method, but I'm completely wrong. And so it turns out the earth is just going to, we're going to burn off the atmosphere and everyone will die. But, you know, I had a great method, but I was wrong about the science. I I didn't care about the science. See, I care about it, but I care about it being pursued in a rigorous way as part of an effort to get at the full context of what energy choices are best for human flourishing. And in terms of my own work, I think my biggest contribution can be to encourage that pursuit of the full context with the goal of human flourishing and to encourage scientists to participate in that quest in a better way. Now, part of what I need to write my book or come to any kind of tentative conclusion is I need to ask questions. So I've, I know a lot more about climate science than I ever expected to. Um, But, you know, I'm always going to be limited unless I made it a specialty, which I won't, you know, I'm going to be limited in what I can know. And so one downside of this is that until a lot of climate scientists are using a better methodology and participating in the right kind of intellectual quest, the the likelihood of me being wrong is higher. So yeah. let, let's say that there was some significant uh, warming threat. It would be almost impossible to know that given today's nonsense because people don't explain anything. They just make appeals to authority and they make crazy kinds of hysterical predictions and they don't talk about any of the the risks of of uh, restricting fossil fuels. So it's very hard when people's methodology is so bad to to discern. Oh, they're right about this one thing. Like they're super biased, but they're kind of they're still right about this thing. And I, so I try to feel that out, but it's so hard to get at that. So you, you do need a division of labor, and I think primarily the philosophers in it should be focused on methodology and familiarizing themselves with scientists and asking scientists questions, but the scientists have a real obligation to, A, arrive at the best conclusions, B, explain them really, really clearly, including their evidence, not just say 97% of us agree, and then C, they need to integrate, they need to seek to integrate what they conclude. So whatever they conclude about fossil fuels and climate, they want to integrate with the knowledge of other fields like economics so that we can come to an overall assessment. I think 
for, for me, it's the scientists, you know, can come to their conclusion, but it should be people you mentioned, economists and philosophers, who go, all right, well, what do we do with this this knowledge? Yes, I mean, exactly. if 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 the ninety seven percent was a hundred percent, and if uh, you know these models were absolutely accurate, and and the truth is they aren't, but 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 let's if we were to give them the full benefit of the doubt, um, and by the end of the century. We warm, I think the uh, uh, the model says something like two or three degrees Celsius. Um, my view on it has always been, all right, well, what do we do about that? Because the current uh, selling point from the scientists is they tell us, well, we are in the 97%. We are correct about this, and here's our model. Um, and what we want you to do about it is we want you to cut back on fossil fuels. Uh, we want you to basically cut back on human progress. Uh, and the way I look at it is, all right, well, what's the other side of the coin? If we accept that you're 100% right about your science, uh, how do we adapt as humans? Because for me, that's what we've been doing on this planet for thousands and millions of years. Um, we've been adapting. So if we're going to get hotter, uh, should we look at which places will be better to live in that are hotter? If the sea will rise, should we look at what barriers we can build to protect our cities or should we abandon certain cities? Is that not a better way to go about it than the hysteria that seems to pervade? Yes, I think the way you're thinking about it is very unusual and it's the right way to think about it. There, there are other things to consider. I mean, you could, so it, it, it depends, it always, to go to the question about science, it depends on the specifics on what, you know, if it's two to three degrees by the end of century, or what are they saying? Is anything two degrees a century? Okay, that wouldn't be such a big deal. But if they're saying, well, it's going to be 10 degrees, you know, mid next century, I mean, at a certain point, it becomes an issue. Now, it's pretty far yeah. from that because we're at a pretty low point in terms of the, the Earth's temperature uh, geologically. So that particular magnitude matters. But but given the magnitude that you specified, you would definitely think about adaptation, of which people naturally do uh, anyway. Um, and you would think about what kinds of cooling technologies exist. And some of the, you know, are there different ones? What what are the risks of those? Are there ways of testing them without having a super long-term uh, thing going on? Uh, there's, you know, in terms of other sources of energy, obviously you want to be open to everything that would be good. Don't just focus on things that are derived from the sun, direct, you know, direct sunlight, including wind, which is mostly a product of that. You obviously want to pursue things like nuclear. You'd look at are we restrict, you know, how can we liberate nuclear? How can we make that better? You would, you would do all sorts of things that nobody is doing. And because the reason you're yeah. doing it is because you, you're, you're on the, you're on a, a pro human and mm. also pro technology, uh, pro ingenuity really premise, which is we want the best outcome for human beings. Let's use all of our ingenuity to do it versus their, their premise is really a preserve nature premise so if we find ourselves affecting nature we should just withdraw right we should just so they're ultimately if you say i want to minimize human impact that's just kind of a cute way of saying i want to minimize the human presence so the 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 environmental movement the modern environmental movement is really if i could use one word to describe its goal it would be dehumanization they want to dehumanize the earth. They literally, they want to make it a less human place. Cause if you want to minimize human impact, 
means you want to minimize the, the, the human uh, presence. So if that's your goal, then your solution, guess what, is always dehumanizing. So if fossil fuels are impacting things, A, you're going to judge that incorrectly because you think impact is inherently bad, and B, your solution will be have less impact. And if somebody had some really great, super cheap form of nuclear, they would not be happy about it. They'd find something else wrong. I must admit, Alex, you, you are very persuasive. I mean, I read your book you know, and I've seen your debates, but um, yeah, I really like the way you think about these things. It, it helps clarify a lot of things for us as well and the tools we use on the podcast itself to, you know, to, to get the type of, of uh, answers and the type of uh, what the goal that we're looking for. It's a very well, we can, I, a I have something to say about that if you're interested. Sure, absolutely. Because I'm working on the reason I, you piqued my interest because I'm working on a project, which if people have heard me talk about it, they're probably annoyed that I keep talking about it and not releasing it, but it needs to be good before I release it. But it's called the Human Flourishing Project. And, and the, the overall goal is to synthesize the world's knowledge about human flourishing. Because yeah, essentially, there are two big problems. I think one, we're not focused on human flourishing. In our knowledge, I mean, you look at the knowledge that people consume, it's just mostly trash. Even in its intent, it's trash, leaving aside its accuracy, just like gossip and just random news. But there are all these really cool, interesting subjects that are crucial to your life. That Why, why aren't we researching those, learning about those? Or why wasn't that more of a focus? So I think there just needs to be a focus on human flourishing. And then once you focus on it, you run into this problem where it is really hard to know what the hell is true about most life and death topics. Uh, I mean, you think about medicine, the, the consequence of, you know, what medical decisions you make, you know, do you go to a physical, do you get, I mean, that can end your life 20 years early, no problem. Yeah. And yet it's really unclear what to do about that nutrition relationships, psychology. I mean, these are not trivial luxury things. These are core to the human experience. And yet how do you get, good uh, knowledge about them. What you have is there is really good knowledge out there. That's why I say I want to synthesize the world's knowledge, but there's much, much more non-knowledge out there. So how do you, what process do you go through so that you can separate the knowledge from the non-knowledge and then fit the knowledge in a way that, that where you can actually apply it in practice to benefit your life. And so the premise of the human flourishing project and, and, and podcast is the kind of number one thing we need to do to get the knowledge we need is we need a process or a method or a framework for asking questions of people who do have the knowledge. So one thing I'm working on with the podcast is what questions can I ask people such if I asked multiple disagreeing experts, I would have a good chance at figuring out who's right. And think about how rare that is. What I just said is really important to, to be arrogant about it. What kinds of questions can I ask? So if I got multiple disagreeing experts, I would have a good chance of finding out who's right and who's wrong. Because, you know, most podcasts, including, you know, my podcast, Power Hour, to a certain extent, and I think it's a pretty good podcast, but they're so – there's such a bias by who happens to be on the show at the moment, right? So if, if, it's, a, if it's a guest with my views, you're going to be inclined to that. But what if I could ask a guest – really rigorous questions such that if he were wrong, even if he's the only one there, uh, it, he would clearly have trouble answering those. And then even better, what if I can get other people uh, involved? So I'm just really interested. But one, one 
kind of question that's useful, which you guys have asked a version of, is basically to know when you're interviewing someone, when I'm interviewing someone, to kind of know the lay of the land of the opposite views and try to ask someone, what is the, here's a question I really like, what is the best argument for the other side? Because if, if somebody cannot give a really compelling sounding argument for their opposition, then I don't think they truly have accounted for it. So I would like to think I can give a better argument for catastrophic global warming than my opponents can. So if you ask them, what is the, if you ask yeah. each person, not just you. what do you think, but what's, what's the best argument it's for the other side, it's fascinating to see how seriously they take. And here's what it shows. It shows, if you ask them the best argument for the other side, part of what you're acknowledging is that all the issues we're talking about are very difficult to get right. And so even when people are wrong, there are, they're, they're trying, to, there's a legitimacy, um, there's some legitimate question or issue underlying uh, their mistake. And if you can't understand that, or you can't communicate that, then I don't think you've really grappled with the field. If it's just, I'm a genius, and everyone else who isn't here is an idiot, then I don't take it seriously. But if you can explain to me, oh yeah, here's exactly the logic of their view, and then, but here's this one wrong premise that makes it all really completely untrue, then I'm really impressed. So I'm working on a lot of things like that, but that's one I find really useful. Yeah, I, th I think well, I think that's that's the the basis of, of Steel Manning, uh, and a core tenet of philosophy is to be the charitable interlocutor, is is to try give the best example of the opponent's argument against them. So Steel Manning, like what what uh, what Sam Harris uses, basically, yeah, basically. I think Dan Dennett yeah, okay, actually. Like, look uh, at his one on climate. But you look at his one on, on climate, I mean, that is like, that's like the paper man Alex, that, they, he, that they used. He says steel manning, but... He doesn't uh, always apply it in, in, in practice. In, in his argument. That's not really good. Uh, a be, the person who steel mans the best is a man called Glenn Lowry, who's a mathematician at, at Brown University. He was on Thaddeus' uh, podcast a few weeks back. Uh, he's excellent at steel manning. Um, oh, okay, that, I'll listen to him. That's a very good example of someone who... who understands the other side and undermines their the principle-based premises as well. Uh, that's a very good example of someone who does that. Um, just on a lot of those points you've raised, you know, you mentioned about finding these, these sort of, what are the, the tenets of, 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 of flourishing? Um, is it, is there, do you think we're going to get there? Do you think you'll get to that answer? I, I, I tend to think, you know, I come from a medical background and uh, you talk about how a chest x-ray can kill people and, and it, that's absolutely true. There are many people who've been killed by chest x-rays and it's not the x-ray itself, but they have an x-ray, just to explain it, they have an x-ray, uh, someone sees something on the x-ray which isn't actually there, they end up going for a surgery they didn't actually need and they end up dying as a result of the surgery. Um, when there was actually nothing wrong with them. Um, but it's, it, it, a lot of these things seem to come down to that it, it really is a, almost a risk versus benefit ratio. Uh, the same goes for, for power generation, for climate change. Um, you were mentioning if we get a 10 degree change, that's very different to a two to three degree change. And, 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 and it's, it's, it's really about weighing uh, those, those, those differences about, about what is too much of a risk and, and, and what do we have to benefit on the other side of it? 
Well, there's there's definitely risk calculations involved in, in everything, but I mean to I mean so with there there's just the better and worse methodology. So one in the realm of, of chest X-rays and diagnosing those. <laughs> that that's going to be a very specialized thing, which I don't know if I'll ever have anything to say about that. But hopefully, influence people who have things to say about that. No, there are probably best practices for doing that that are not followed by a huge, by a very significant and important percentage uh, of of people. I'll take one realm I've been studying a bit, and I want to interview a guy on this my podcast is just in the realm of of psychotherapy. It just seems like studies of that show that there are certain approaches that are just demonstrably very consistently effective compared to other approaches where there's not much. And so there you know there you're dealing with people who can have very significant emotional issues, tumult and can go on for decades if they're taking the wrong kind of approach whereas presumably you know if they take a better approach they could be feeling better in a matter of months maybe. So that's just the kind of thing where the best the exist there's there's an issue of how do you make best practices better but even knowing what the best practices are i think is very very difficult um and and in the, it's really fascinating in the field of, of of philosophy how little work there's done in what i can what we could call consumer epistemology so how how knowledge consumers and, and uh how we can really know what's true uh from what isn't true, let alone the issue of how we fit it all together, which I don't think philosophy today covers uh, enough at all. And so, so to me, it's just this issue of there. this is such an urgent problem that, I mean, what could be more important that we don't have the knowledge we need to flourish in life? Like we don't have, you know, talk about reliable access to energy. We don't have reliable access to knowledge. And yeah, we have reliable. It's just this, Sorry, go ahead, Alex. Well, we have we have reliable access to information. Yeah, that was my point. Yeah, but that, that's but but that's that's I mean that's kind of like if you had like reliable access to vegetation, but you didn't know how what was food and what was poison. We're the, we're the monkeys with the typewriters, and we've, we've got lots of letters, but we we're not making Shakespeare. Uh, well, it's not, it's not, it's not that bad. Or, <laughs> well, I don't know. Have you been on the internet lately? <laughs> well, but, but it's, it's just interesting how even for the better, even if you want, if you're, if you're on the premise of finding knowledge that really matters mm. and you want it to be real knowledge, even if you're on those two premises and those are rare enough to be on, it's, it's really hard. And so that imposes obligations on us as knowledge consumers, but also I think equally on knowledge producers. So I want to teach knowledge producers to to think about their ideas and communicate them in such a way that I, as a consumer, can differentiate good from bad. You should be able to communicate things in such a way that I think, oh, when I read this, it's there's something right. And and I think one thing that, that makes you think someone is right is if they explain their methodology. So I think a lot of people tend to trust me on things because I explain my method. Yeah, from, from the outset. They, they can... They can Buy on, they can buy into that. Uh, whereas if you just start off with "here's my conclusions," then then really it's just, do you have a, are, are, is it congenial with your starting point? Uh, versus no, how do I think about this? So when I can tell somebody thinks about method, that's good. And then when they can really engage the opposing views, that's good. But as soon as oh, this person is an, everyone else is an idiot you shouldn't even be thinking about their views, 
then I really suspect the person is not right. And if they are right, then they're doing me a disservice by communicating in such a bad way. Well, Alex, I think you're, uh, well, you're probably the most ambitious man that I've ever had the pleasure to speak to, because if you manage to find a way to ensure that the knowledge imparted is the correct one, I think you solved the issue of, of humanity. I mean, I don't know how else to explain it. Well, it sure is strong, but, but I mean, I just imagine if I think, I think it's, it's a non, I think it's definitely doable to make people 10 times better at processing claims Mm-hmm. And yeah. to make producers ten times better at communicating claims, certainly the processing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a but that's a big deal. Oh, but oh, as massive. part of that, if you can do that, part of that is that that it, you know the ultimate thing is to actually synthesize the knowledge so people can use it. That means that you know the ability of a, a podcast can be ten times more valuable or even more because you know hopefully the human flourishing podcast over time will have guests who they're not only vetted, but more importantly, they're asked questions where you, you have a much better chance at judging whether they're, uh, they're right or not. And ultimately, not, in the not-too-distant future, part of the vision is we want to have really good online means for people to be challenged, and where anyone can challenge, but where we particularly encourage experts to challenge. Uh, so there's just... Once you focus on this as a problem, you can make a lot of progress. And I think it's like most things. You can get – there are a lot of kind of easy wins, and then long-term there are more difficult things. But what's fascinating to me is nobody's nobody's focused on the fact that they don't know what they need to know. Well, there's there's a lot of arrogance involved in that. Back to the climate example again. Um, It's it's, The assumption is is we know already – yeah, the, the tyranny of experts is a real thing, and uh, but it, it appears to it appears to be to be flowing away. I think experts are being treated with more suspicion than ever before, which I suppose is a good thing. But I think there's also the the tyrannical anxiety of ignorance. This just occurred to me because this expression mm. "ignorance is bliss," but it is not at all. And no. I mean, because every day, every day we are encountering these life and death issues in the sense of by which I mean they make a big difference in in the quality and length uh, of our lives, our day-to-day experience, our experience. And we encounter these all the time. You know, how do we deal with uh, relationships? How do we deal with our own thoughts? How do we deal with our own emotions? What do we eat? Um, you know, obviously things like political policies. And there is a, just a different feeling if you feel like you're in control of you're, you're generally getting better knowledge and applying better knowledge and having success. Versus you really have no idea. Yeah. And, and like, I, there's a lot of stuff I have no idea about, but even the fact that I know that I acknowledge that and that I'm working consciously on having an idea, that itself gives me uh, confidence. Yeah. And so I think it's quite similar to, to Jordan Peterson's idea of finding meaning in life. Um, uh, the worst, the worst possible scenario for humanity is, is not having any meaning and not trying to find it at all. You know, i.e., called nihilism, and that is actually a very destructive emotion. So he he advocates the the uh, finding the meaning in your own life, and you start by just cleaning up your environment, getting some discipline in, uh, being able to read, 
differing, you know, different work, uh, being charitable to others, speak, just speaking to people generally in a general sense, uh, you will find your meaning because people without meaning, um, at well, it's a terrible way to go around uh, in life. Well, notice this is one final thought. I think a lot of what has made him a phenomenon is he's speaking to a real need that people have, or I think more broadly, just yeah. the, the need for psychological guidance and, and to a certain extent moral guidance that is not being addressed. And he's a very smart guy and has a lot of uh, insights. So regardless of whether he's right about uh, everything or even most things, he's he's offering he's addressing a real life and death need and he's offering clear arguments uh in, in in this area that is mostly neglected by uh by discussion it's really great to see the kinds of topics he addresses and how different that is even from i think sam harris is in this category of addressing generally good kinds of things but you know most commentary is just so political uh just always political which is just a weird thing because politics is important but it's always it's always something you have very limited control over and in most contexts it's something that has limited control over you you should only be concerned with it insofar as it has control potential control uh, over you whereas there are all these other things that directly affect you all the time that people yes. are afraid to discuss and it, they're either discussed by i think certain courageous interesting people like jordan peterson and sam harris interestingly they're also i think indirectly discussed in comedy so people are willing to joke uh, about a lot of things they'll address them that way but just talking about their actual experience of life what and the things that are actually most important is something that's that's very difficult or it's done by i would say kind of hucksters who are pretty good at direct response Marketing. Not there's anything wrong with direct response marketing, but people who they see that people have these needs and they're very good at 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 finding a niche. But I don't think most of the people doing that have. Uh, I I know they have not systematically examined it in the way that I'm talking about. Such that like if I see a really good online advertisement about I don't know psychology or feeling better, like his health is more likely. Like oh this kind of pill is going to save your life. I have no idea. If that's true. And that's a problem because something like that is true and is beneficial. And a lot of things like that are not true and are harmful and a lot are nothing. And it really matters that I know that. And it's, it's a really frustrating that I can't right now. But so that's that's why that's why this whole project is needed. No, absolutely. I mean, I mean, kudos, Alex. I mean, we went from fossil fuels to to finding uh, you know, the meaning of life in, in an hour. That's quite something. I quite like the segues. That's the joy of having a conversation with, uh, with people who care about their premises. So that's it from our side, Alex. Uh, you know, thank you very much for joining us. It was extremely beneficial. Um, I hope, yeah. I hope you, you didn't feel that, uh, you had to repeat yourself too often. No, I was really, really interesting. I mean, I was, as you can probably tell, I'm very eager to discuss this stuff we discussed at the end. I'll just say, people interested in more information, mm, uh, best thing to do is go to industrialprogress.com. And then if you want, also you can get on the list at humanflourishingproject.com. Of course, I'm on social media, but I have a weekly newsletter at industrialprogress.com, and that's the best way to keep up. And that's how people, many people listening to this will have heard about it through that newsletter. Yeah, well, that, that sounds, that sounds really great. And, and as a project, once you've gotten over everyone writing hit pieces on your book, 
uh, which I, I see are still coming out two years, three years after the fact. Um, it seems like a, a, a even more noble project. Uh, I want them to write more hit pieces. So go. <laughs> well, it's, it's it's always interesting to me how they're writing a hit piece on the moral case for fossil fuels, and they leave out the moral bit. Um, so there's a lot of disagreement on on you know you say this about the science, they say that about the science, but uh, um, they never push their moral argument, um, which I, I do find quite interesting. Not in, in in none of the pieces I've read, to be to be fair. Yeah, I think that's that's indicative. So, which gives you, you know, I've read your book and and I would highly recommend it to everyone. I'm not just saying that. I have said that on previous podcasts, um, just simply because I enjoy those types of arguments, um, which which place humanity at the centre of of the issue, uh, rather than ancillary um, ideas or politics at the centre. Wait, sorry. Was there a question at the beginning? No, I totally no, no, no question. No oh. question at all. Uh, just okay. Uh, okay. No, just, I, I just, can tell that. I, co- I like the way both of you are approaching these issues, and it's good that that's uh, happening. And I, I got to go in a minute, but sometimes I'm interested in, uh, you know, I'm interested in what what's possible in South Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa more broadly. Because you know, I, was, I was impressed by a lot of the people I met, and it was refreshing to talk to people who have a like a direct concern for human life mm. versus a feigned well, well, concern. I, I, I know you have to go, but just, just, you know, the reality is that human life is under a lot greater threat uh, in this part of the world uh, than, you know, for example, Southern California. Uh, I think uh, things are a lot more figured out on that side of the world than they are necessarily here uh, for large parts of the population. And so, um, you know, decisions really do make a massive difference in people's lives. And that's uh, good point. That's I think I think that's 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 why you you, you sort of feel that and see that coming through. But uh, I know you have to go. Thank you really very much for for coming on the show, and uh, we hope uh, we hope to have you in studio next time you're in South Africa. <laughs> yes. Well, you're a little bit far away from where I was. Uh, well, we, maybe we can make a plan. It's not not that far away. It's a two hour flight. Um, uh, that that. That's true. It was a long Uber, though. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Alex, thanks very much, uh, and uh, right. enjoy the rest of your day. All right. Have a good day, guys. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Right. So, uh, Ramon, thank you for organizing Alex to come on the show. A very interesting hour. Yeah, I'm still a bit baffled. Did we solve the world's problems or? Well, towards the we, end, we might have. We might have. We well, Alex, co- Alex might be solving yeah. the world's problems. Alex is let's, working let's on it. Let's not take credit for that. But, um, I appreciate the methodology that he's using to talk about these issues. Yeah. That's very important. We, we, we get bogged down in the minutiae of what the scientific papers said. Um, and, and, and then we disagree about that, you know, minute detail. Mm. Instead of talking about the, the broader, the premises that we have is do we want human flourishing or don't we? Mm. We both agree human flourishing is great. What is the best way to do that? Yeah. And I think that's a very important. And then let's disagree on the way to get there and, and have those arguments. Well, yes, we'll agree on the premise first. Yeah. And, uh, and then, then the proper debate can be had. But often we disagree on the very premise itself. So then we get stuck. Yeah. And All right. Then, then, then that's what we call uh, politics, you know? <laughs> So uh, that's the show for the week. Uh, if you are new to the podcast, thank you for tuning in. Uh, you can support the show on Patreon. 
Uh, American listeners, as we always tell you, your dollar goes very far in South Africa. We really would appreciate uh, anything you're able to give. If you're not able to give, that's no problem. We appreciate all our listeners. If you could subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, we're appreciative of that. And uh, you're welcome to join in the conversation. So we are on Twitter at Renegade underscore report, Ramon at Roman Kabanak, myself at Jonathan underscore wit. And you can find us on Facebook, Renegade Report and Renegade Report Group, where we have very interesting and in-depth discussions on all these kinds of issues and topics. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Cheers. Cliffcentral.com.